Tony Speaks and this is my lovely wife, Kim. We are the founders and co-creators of the lifestyle brand and podcast, Becoming Disciplined. Every week we meet, learn from, and share best practices with highly disciplined men and women from a variety of fields and endeavors. Follow us on our journey. Pastor Jerome Gay Jr. was raised in Southeast Washington, D.C. and moved to the Raleigh, North Carolina area in 1997 to attend St. Augustine's College for his undergraduate studies, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Communications. While there, he founded a campus ministry that emphasized the gospel and biblical orthodoxy in the urban context. The ministry grew campus-wide with many trusting Christ as Savior. Upon graduating, he served as an elder for several years and after fervent prayer was led to plant Vision Church in October of 2010. Vision Church has grown by God's grace and is impacting the inner city of Raleigh by missionally engaging the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ through discipleship, leadership development, service, and social empowerment. Pastor Jerome serves as the pastor of teaching and vision at Vision Church. Jerome has a vision to see gospel-centered churches and leaders raised up within the urban context and sent out to plant other gospel-centered churches. Jerome is married to Crystal Gay and the father of Jamari Gay and son Jerome Jordan Gay III. He is also the author of two books, The Whitewashing of Christianity, A Hidden Past, A Hurtful Present, and A Hopeful Future, and Renewal, Grace and Redemption in the Story. Jerome is also the founder and president of the Urban Perspective. Jerome has a master's degree in Christian studies and ethics from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But this week, Pastor Jerome Gay Jr. is Becoming Disciplined. Today on Becoming Disciplined, we interview pastor and author Jerome Gay Jr. Pastor Gay, welcome to Becoming Disciplined. We are so honored to have you. Man, Tony, thank you so much for having me on. Honored to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, so are we. So are we. Now, for my audience, Pastor Jerome Gay is a community activist, an apologist, and a pastor of pastors that has brought a broad circle of influence. He has developed an extraordinary level of discipline in the area that Jesus called the ultimate measure of greatness, service to others. But, Pastor, before we hear about your current endeavors, it would benefit our audience to understand your context, just like scripture. Context is everything. So where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Southeast Washington, D.C., man. So I was born and raised there. That was the concrete jungle uh, where I was born. Amen, amen. I used to go there and get in trouble all the time. So I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. I understand. Uh, now, because uh, I served in the in the Army in Fort Myers, so I used to, okay, used to yeah. go to Southeast all the time. Well, thank you for your service, brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you, my brother. Now, what was your childhood like? How, how would you describe it? Conventional, unconventional? What, 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 what was it like? Yeah, it was unconventional, man. So like I said, grew up in Southeast Washington, D.C. Uh, my mom had me at 16. Her and my dad were teenagers when they had me. My dad entered the military. So we went from D.C., which was known as Chocolate City, to Junction City, Kansas, uh, So, which is the total opposite of Chocolate City. And it was there where I had a Quite a few interesting experiences. We lived there for close to around five years or so. We lived in Kansas, moved back to Washington, D.C. And that was when uh, I really began to wrestle with matters of faith, found out about my dad's uh, drug addiction. Uh, he would make my mom and I go to church. 
while he'd be out doing his thing. And we ended up living uh, right across the street from a converted Safeway, Safeway grocery store, but a church converted it, that Safeway into a church. And uh, it was there at the age of 13 that I heard the gospel. It was a traditional altar call. I went up front and trusted Christ. And mm-hmm. that was that was where I met Christ. Uh, my theology at that time is different now, but my theology was I'm going to go up there and get Jesus and sit back down. But when I went up after uh, trusting Christ and his gospel, the pastor began to prophesy over me that I was a pastor. And I was like, man, I'm 13. This is this is not in my plan. I, I came up here to get Jesus. <laughs> sit back down. Uh, but it was a couple years later, right around the age of 16, I really began to wrestle with being called to ministry. Wasn't sure what that was going to look like. But that's kind of my story in a, a snapshot. I know we'll talk a little bit more about the church later on, but that's kind of a snapshot of my experience. Amen. Amen. Now, as a child, was there someone or adolescent, was there someone who inspired you with their level of discipline? Definitely my mom. My mom. Seeing, seeing she had a a very disciplined schedule. She would iron her clothes for the entire week, for the work week. She had my schedule down packed, you know, eventually being a single mom and raising me. She she just had a very regimented schedule. She was extremely disciplined. She didn't veer off from that. And that definitely impacted me in a positive way. Okay. All right. Now, uh, we, we time travel in this, uh, in this podcast. So we're going to time travel. You're going to be able to time travel to your, to you. Uh, you're going to be able to whisper into your ear at age 15. Uh, but you can only get one sentence out. What would you tell 15 year old Jerome? Wow. That's a, that's an interesting question. I would tell 15 year old Jerome that their acceptance is not worth it. Mm, that's powerful. That is powerful. Um, yeah, we we fifteen year old Tony could have benefited from that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, uh, yeah. matter of fact, thirty year old Tony could have benefited from that. Uh, that. That goes for that works even inside the church sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, know? absolutely. You know? Now, where did you go to undergrad? So, I went to undergrad to St. Augustine's College. It's, just, it's a historically black college. Founded in the 1860s in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So I went there and got a degree in broadcast communications. Mm-hmm. So that's that was my undergrad experience. It was there I really began to walk out in ministry, established a campus ministry there. Ended up uh, working and merging with another ministry later on after I graduated. But that was uh, my undergrad experience. Okay. Now, you know, this podcast, we talk a lot about discipline and, and uh, I think it's something that, that the church needs and, and our country needs. Uh, along with that theme and in that context, can you speak to the value of having a mentor? I think it's huge. I, I have mentors or spiritual fathers who pour into me. I'm able to bounce ideas off. They save me and keep me from making certain mistakes that they've made or repeating mistakes as it relates to me as a father. I always tell guys I mentor, but I've learned this from guys who have mentored me. And my order is son, uh, son of Yeshua, father, I'm sorry, husband of Crystal, father to Jamar and Jordan, and then pastor to Vision Church. And I've learned that just watching other men who have modeled that as it relates to their schedule and guarding their family, guarding their time not making the church an idol. And so their influence has made me a better man in those different pockets, son, husband, father, pastor. And so it was huge to have someone to pour into you. You see the model 
with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and then Paul and Timothy. You you see, and it's discipleship, but you see this this idea of people pouring into one another. So I think it's huge. Maybe we can help a young preacher out here today. What disciplines do you <laughs> recommend for sermon development? How how did you how how do you put together a sermon? Because you are you are incredible on that pulpit. Wow, man. Well, well I, thank you for for saying that. I, so, well, a couple of things. Number one, based on how God has led me to pastor in, in our church, I try to do everything in community. So uh, typically during the week, we I do a group exegesis. So group exegesis is me and a couple other people looking at the text that's going to be preached. And each person brings different perspectives and gifting as to what aspect of a certain passage or pericope that they're going to focus on. And so having that kind of group experience, we did it today, matter of fact, um, as I prepare for this weekend. And uh, so we do that. I then, when we're in that time, we're coming up with what I call a thought tattoo. Now, Brian Chappell calls it the falling condition focus in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching. But that, that terminology doesn't translate to my context. So I flipped it and called it the thought tattoo. Like, what is the big idea coming from the text? Uh, the section of of, of uh, the section of scripture that I'm going to address. I'm then after that thought tattoo that'll lead me to kind of the meat of it and then the application. And so, uh, but but in terms of my direct process, and I train when I do my preaching cohort, and I'll be writing on this. Um, but I I train guys or, or speakers that I think a complete sermon should have seven C's. And so the first C is content and the content is the text itself the the text um the the author the genre of the writing the geography happen around it um the second c is confrontation you know what is the text actually confronting um is it is there is it a specific sin is it a mindset is it a person is it a group of people what's being confronted third c is uh, com- is a uh, is conviction how how is the spirit then after confronting them then convicting the person or hopefully attempting to convict the person because sometimes you see people rebel uh, in the text after that conviction that fourth C is counsel in light of you being confronted and hopefully convicted how is the text now counseling so as a pastor how are you counseling your people because you don't want to just beat them up you don't want them leaving as if they don't have hope right we want to be prisoners of hope and remind them that the gospel is still still better, you know. And so, so after you know, after doing that, this fifth C is is somewhat optional, but comedy. You know, are there points where I can bring levity to the text so it's not a rigid and a boring sermon? The sixth C is celebration. How am I celebrating that Christ has won? Christ is our victor, Christus exemplar, right? How are we celebrating Christ? And then the seventh C is conversion. Am I giving an offer for someone to trust Christ? And so when I train people, I say, uh, you people naturally do it, but I'm so type A. A complete sermon has those seven C's. And a great sermon is when people walk away saying, not what a great sermon, but what a great savior. Amen. Amen. I love that. Well, I'm gonna I teach some ministers on uh Tuesday, so I'm gonna I'm gonna record that and I'll I'm gonna get that back for <laughs> you. 
Hey, that's some good stuff. You, you, about, good you, stuff. About to, you about to do a Holy Ghost steal, Doc? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them it was you, bro. I'm going to let them know it was yeah, you. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool. <laughs> uh, at least the first three times I used it. I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> those, but around the fourth time, you know, you know how Baptist preachers get out, man. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was but worse those, before those the seven, internet. That, those seven C's, that grid has been helpful for me and as I train people, like, because a lot of times people might focus on one sure. and like he- heavy on content, it feels like a lecture. Sure. But then you just, if you're just heavy on confrontation, it feels like you're beating somebody up. Amen. And if it's heavy, heavy on counsel without confronting sin, then it feels like advice. So just bringing all of those together, you got to, I believe you have a complete sermon. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Now, uh, and all the ministers, y'all really need to listen because that's it. He, uh, Pastor Jerome did not develop that overnight. That that is something no, that sir. developed over no, experience and time. No. Now, uh, what advice? Uh, let's time travel one more time. Uh, the first time, whatever that was in ministry, where people knew that you were a minister. You know, because a lot of times we're we're called. We peak the shade way before people know that we're called. Yeah. But the first time that you were publicly a minister and you were in charge of of a ministry. What advice would you give to uh, Jerome on that first year of ministry? Yeah, man. So, so this, this, this is little, this is deep uh, from the standpoint of experience, but so here's what I would say. I would, I had, I would tell myself, stop giving CPR to dead relationships. Mm. And, And what I mean by that is just learning in the process of leadership and growth that not everyone's going to be with you mm. and and not everyone's meant to be with you the entire time like you got to realize that some some sometimes when people leave it's god's providence it's part of his plan but you want to hold on to everybody Amen. and some some relationships are just toxic and you just mm-hmm. learn man um i got to stop giving cpr to their relationships and i have to move on and see that God is leading me to develop other leaders and he's sending in new people and be okay with God's process. Amen. Triple amen, brother. Triple amen. Now, for our audio listeners, we pause at this moment for a one minute and 33 second paid video sponsorship. Good morning. Good afternoon or good evening. Whatever time it is in your time zone. At least on my time, it's it's after church, and I don't know about you. Sometimes after church, I'm just lacking energy. Courtney, yes. Can you get me? Can you get me a uh, one of the vitamins that your mama takes? There you go, Daddy. Mm. Let me try one of these. Tastes pretty good. My God, my God, Q! What do you have in there? It's made with vitamins B9 and B12. It's it's great for my overall health. It's made with pectin, a unique fiber in fruit peels. It's simple and delicious. Q, did you know that more people search apple cider vinegar in the U.S. than tea? Google has 15,000 people searching that word every day in the U.S. alone. Q, how can more people get this gummy? If you want to support the podcast, or if you're looking to improve your health, you can order these gummies at https forward slash forward slash go.goalie.com forward slash becoming disciplined. 
don't forget to use our promo code Becoming Disciplined. Now, um, and, and this relates to discipline as well, because I don't think I could be the man that I could be today if the Lord had not protected me, because it wasn't my wisdom. It was the Lord protecting me and he gave me the right wife. Um, but my question to you is for any young brothers who are listening today, what advice do you give to them to help them pick the right help me? Uh, you know, what, what, what words of wisdom can you offer? Well, a couple of things, man. So it's funny, man. I'm, I'm, we're literally in a series called R and B, which stands for relationships and blues. And we're going through the relationship process. So the first thing I tell people is you got to submit your search. So when you look at Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 67, you see Abraham trusting that Eleazar is going to find a wife for his son Isaac. You see Eleazar trusting that God is going to show him a woman that's going to serve. You see Rebecca trusting that going back with Eleazar is not going to end in her harm. You see Isaac trusting that they've done all this work that didn't include him, but that ultimately he'll end up with the woman he needs to be, end up with. And so you got to submit your search. And too mm -hmm. often the things on our list have nothing to do with scripture. And I'm not saying that looks don't matter, but the Bible talks more. We have to place. So submit your search. Number two, place character over cuteness. This is for men and women. It's like really the Bible talks about a woman of God is to be praised. Men who lift up holy hands in prayer, men who pursue godliness in First Timothy. Like we have to, you know, look for character. Number three is that whole the one thing can be a myth. The Bible focuses more on becoming than it does finding. So are you what you're looking for? Have you looked in the mirror uh, in the spirit of David in Psalm 139? Like God search you and know your anxious thoughts and the areas of maturity you need to. You, you, you need to have in order to be to be ready. But then eventually, you know, you got to go for it. So if you've done that, you've submitted your search and you've followed God's order, which is spirit being one spiritually, you know, not being unequally yoked soul, having a friendship, learning how that person is then body, which is after marriage, sex. Our culture's order is body, soul, spirit. We put the body first and then we ask when things go wrong, what do they believe? The, the scripture order is spirit first, soul, then body. Then you get to consummate that thing. But it starts with this idea of being one, one spiritually. So I think those are a couple of things I would tell those guys. And then here's a bonus. When you get married, remember that wisdom is personified as female in scripture. Listen Amen. to her. Amen. Listen to her. Amen. 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 So in other words, don't do anything that Kevin Samuels tells you to do. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doc, I haven't seen any of his stuff. I need to check it out for this series. I plan actually plan on looking at some of his stuff this week. But it's it's crazy how women just literally <laughs> call in to get badgered. It's like I've seen clips. It's like, wow. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell uh, if I ever meet the brother, I'm going to tell him I'm, I'm jealous a little bit because I've been telling people the truth and love for years. And, you know, they will still leave the church and everything else. But he uh, tells the people some tr some truth with a lot of brutality. Uh, and uh, and, uh, you know, people still jump in line for it. Now, uh, <laughs> let's time travel one more time. If you can advise. Uh, Jerome Gay, on the first day that your first child was born, you're in. You you get to walk into that room and whisper into the ear of Jerome Gay when he's holding that baby the first time. 
what what advice would you give? Yeah, disciple. Well, my daughter was first. I have two children, uh, my daughter and my son. And so specifically talking about her, I would just say disciple her and trust. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I want to I disciple my daughter. We still do family devotions with my family, but I cannot live it for her. So I have to trust that the seed of the gospel that I believe has been planted and she's saved. Um, that 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 that's taking root, and that you know she will live the rest of her life as a woman of God, and my son will as a man of God. And so, disciple and then trust. Like, just remember, I can't control the rate of their spiritual maturity and how they will respond to every situation that that awaits them. But I can show them who is with them and how the peace of God will guard their hearts and mind, as it says in Philippians four. And so, that's 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 what I would say. Amen. Amen. Now, Pastor Jerome, what book outside the Bible do you recommend that has helped you the most on your life journey? Man, it's I'm a reader now, man. I used to <laughs> I, uh, at a, that was a time. So you said just one. I, I, for me, it was it was it would have to be Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. OK. Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. Because of, you know, I'm a pastor, so that's just a part of my life. But it, it is one of the most transparent books I've read on the balance of life and ministry and marriage and parenting and eldership and how to be authentic while you wear those hats so that you don't become a performer. And so mm-hmm. that that book is what I call a good spanking because mm-hmm. it, it'll be a lot of moments where you feel. You know, I talked about convicted in my seven C's. Uh, you mm-hmm. definitely, you definitely feel that within that book. So I, w- I would have to give it up to my man, uh, Doctor Tripp, on that one. Okay, I'll definitely check it out, and I'll have our ministers check it. Matter of fact, we might read that together. Uh, we might read that together as a, as a uh, learning exercise. Now, what book or passage inside the Bible has had the deepest impact in, in your life? Yeah, Luke nine sixty two. Uh, where it talks about he who put in his hand to the plow, if he looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom. Mm. 62, I think on into 63. But yeah, so that 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 has always brought me back to what Timothy talks about is, you know, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. So this idea of keeping my hand to the plow when people leave, keeping my hand to the plow when people criticize, keeping my hand to the plow. When marriage isn't even the one I want it to be, keeping my hand to the plow when my kids aren't doing what I want them to do, remembering that when it when the Bible talks about the peace of God, it mm-hmm. doesn't say it'll keep you from difficulty. It says it will guard your heart and your mind. That's mm-hmm. what it says. It's a guard, but it, it doesn't keep you from experiencing those things. So knowing that he's with me in that struggle, that encourages me to you know keep my hands to that plow. So that, that verse is one I always come back to. Amen. Amen. Now, Pastor Gay, here's the number one reason why I invited you on this show. I have seen you defend the faith while remaining calm and level headed. I've seen you be strong without um, without being overbearing Uh, within the broader apologetic community, though. I've noticed some emotional immaturity and, and I'll even throw myself in there, you know, uh, you know, that, that, that I, I can at times 
get a little too heated or, you know, maybe even a little too silly. Uh, how do you always manage, and, and I always put you and Adam Coleman as the two brothers within, uh, on the on the urban side, and then I'm trying to think of anyone on the evangelical side that fits with them. Can't really think of any. In apologetics, how are you able to, you have this special power where you have this ability to stay above the pettiness, you know, where, you know, and you still are relatable to people, but you don't, you never seem to kind of get into the muck and the mire or the silliness or anything else. Um, what do you, how do you, how did that happen? How did, how did God make you that way? What experiences help develop you that way so that you, um, that you always kind of stay above the, the fray and you don't get into the pettiness and, and you don't get it, you know, cause there's, you know, you just see it in the apologetic community where, you know, I'm calling so-and-so out and, you know, and I'm calling you out and, you know, like there's just a lot of, sometimes there's a lot of extra, you know, and, and we're supposed to be folks who know the 18 points of doctrine and we, we have all of this biblical stuff, but then folks can get, folks can get petty sometimes. And you have an, you and Adam Coleman have an emotional discipline that I, I, I can't think of anyone on the evangelical side that has it. And you and Adam have it on the urban apologetic side, but I just don't, I just don't see it that common in the apologetic community. How did you get it? How did God make you that way? Yeah, man. Well, well, first, I, I definitely don't want to claim to say I always, you know what I mean? I, I definitely don't. Yeah, I just, I just don't want to. I know I'm far from perfect and I'm a, you know, I'm saying this product of grace, right? Like I'm a recipient of grace. I need it and I mess up. But I, in the past, man, I've, I've preached about having the bad combination of being loud and wrong. <laughs> and so I've experienced that. And I, I, I try to think about being empathetic, even towards those that may be attacking me or mischaracterizing my claims or my position. And for me, it's like, am I trying to like really win the argument or win the person? And I want to focus on winning the person. And part of doing that is tone matters. Tone and presentation matters. The example I always use in my when I'm in my church when I'm dealing with communication, if I'm whether it be just general communication or with couples, is I ask people, I say, what's your favorite dish? And people yell out stuff, lasagna, lobster, you know, whatever it is, steak, medium. All right. Um, take that same dish that laid out exactly how you want it, dessert and everything. It's a full entree. And I give it to you, but it's on a trash can lid. Mm. And I say that's that's what bad communication when you present truth, but your tone doesn't match the love of Christ. Right. So the meal looks good. But you're not I'm not eating out of a trash can lid. I eat mm -hmm. from a plate. And so just remembering that as I'm engaging people and I and I and I leave the results up to God, man, like I've freed myself from trying to being responsible for winning the person. Mm -hmm. I'll attempt the same way like Jesus. Jesus does the conversion, not us. And he's left discipleship unto us by his spirit. And we kind of flip it like we save and we, we want. Jesus did the discipleship was well, like, it's not my role to save this person. It's not my role to win this person. I present the truth in love. And then I just kind of leave it there. And I try to set boundaries to say, 
I usually will end if it's a man. Good day, brother. You, if you've seen me, I type that almost all the time. Good day, brother. Like we engaged in, and and a lot of time I've been mischaracterized, man. You know, CRT, Marxist, all this other foolishness that doesn't apply to me. But it's like, hey, I'm I'm not. If I respond the same way they are, then I'm using the same tactic, and I'm no better. So I want to exemplify the spirit of self-control because that's one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. So either I believe I have it or I don't. And again, I'm not perfect with it, but I prayed God for, for God, especially even now with my new book coming out. Once that comes out, I know there'll be critique and backlash is to say, Lord, let me still always respond with a posture of love, even when I'm not getting that same energy uh, directed towards me. I want to give that back. So definitely prayer, man. Prayer has been the thing. Yeah. It's like expecting backlash, expecting critique, expecting ridicule, and saying, I want to show the love of Christ. Last thing I'll say is this. I, I tell my church this, man. I say, the time to be Christ-like is when you don't want to be. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And, and when someone is attacking your character sure. and mischaracterizing your position, you don't want to be, but that's the whole point. When Jesus like, it's easy to love people who love you. Amen. Love your enemies, right? Amen. So it's like, okay, that's the time. The time to be Christ-like is when I don't want to be. And so I just, the Holy Ghost will remind me of that as I'm typing, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet. So I want my, I want my fingers to honor Him, man. Amen. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. And also, let me get. I, I thought of two. I, I thought of three evangelicals that have uh, somewhat uh, emotional uh, emotional discipline. William Lane Craig. I lift him up. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then Dr. Hugh Ross, and then uh, Ken Samples. So I I, I didn't want to leave out some evangelical brothers who yeah. who also have that fruit of uh, of emotional discipline. So. At Becoming Discipline, we examine discipline or organization in the following areas. Spirituality, mental discipline, physical discipline, emotional intelligence, financial discipline, time management, and home and data organization. Now, which of these do you consider your strong points? Which could use some work? And then among the, the area that could use some work, what plan do you have to, to try to buffer that, that, that one area out? So my strongest would be the physical discipline. I mean, I, I work out. I, run, I do a 5K every Saturday. Um, so e exercising, uh, and that's also an outlet for me. So that's easy. Um, e even if I don't want to do it, I, I read uh, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. And he says, you know, he says uh, the greatest threat to success is not failure, it's boredom. Mm. So I've learned how to work through, like, I know this workout routine, work through that boredom to still get the results to take care of this body. The one I probably need the, the most help on, I would say, is the time thing. And that's just, um, I, I have a, you know, I have an assistant, so I have a, a schedule, but I still need to say no more. Amen. And so one of the buffers is my assistant and then my wife, I include my wife on scheduling things. And so I tell guys, look, man, none of us are omni gifted. And so 
just beginning to say no and realize I got other elders and leaders that can handle this and passing them on. So that's kind of the plan, but just letting my wife, my assistant, like hold me accountable to not overbooking myself um, because I want to kind of be there for everybody when like, no, I need to say no more as it relates to my schedule. Amen. 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 Now, uh, in 2018, you put out a book entitled Renewal, which mm-hmm. featured the book of Ruth. What inspired yeah. you to write about Ruth? I just love the story, man. I love, I love, so it's, it's renewal, grace and redemption in the story of Ruth. And I, and I love just how you, you go from this woman, Naomi, you know, losing Elimelech, Malin, and Killian, and assuming that she's going to lose Oprah and Ruth. But Ruth decides to go back with her. And it's a beautiful story, this reminder of God's grace, because they're in Moab, which based on Deuteronomy, they shouldn't have been there. But in Moab, they hear that the famine has been lifted and that they can come on home. And so in their place of disobedience, God meets them to let them know that they can come home. And that's just a beautiful display of the gospel when while we were yet sinners, right? Christ meets us in our place of disobedience, not for us to stay there but to call us back home to himself. And you see just how the lineage, the earthly lineage of Christ continues as we get to Boaz and we eventually get to Jesse and then we end up getting to the God man, Jesus. So just that thread of the gospel within that is something I wanted to write about. So that was was my first book, man. Amen, amen. I'm excited about this next book that you got coming out. Uh, It gets me into trouble on on a regular basis. Because I'm one of the people who I actually, uh, well, I might, I'll edit this out if it, if if it, if if you find it offensive or anything. But uh, um, I'm one of those people who I believe that God allowed the Hebrew, He allows the Hebrew Israelite cult to kind of flourish right now because I think it's correcting an error in the church. And don't get me wrong, I'm not Hebrew Israelite at all. But what I'm trying to say is I think that there's around two or three errors that occurred uh, that occurred throughout history. And the whitewashing of Christianity is one of those errors. So even though I don't agree with the Hebrew Israelites, I think uh, like the same way he used the Babylonians to to bring, you know, admonition upon the uh, the Jews. I think that, that, that some of what we're having to deal with the Hebrew Israelites, I think, is because there's, there needs to be some correction that occurs and uh i'm really i'm thankful and i'm looking forward to to reading your book and i've I've been listening to a lot of videos and uh can you tell us pastor can you tell us about your new book whitewashing christianity yeah thanks man so it's it's called the whitewashing of christianity Uh, then the subtitle kind of gives you a summary a synopsis somewhat of the book so the subtitle is a hidden past so i want to talk about Africa's and Africans' contribution to the Christian faith faith as it relates to theology and missions and philosophy. And so there's this hidden past of where we don't know about Africa's influence, Africa's inclusion in scripture. What do we know about the Kushites in Ethiopia? What do we know about the Coptic church? And so there's this hidden past because we start church history at Wittenberg. So we start with the Protestant Reformation but we kind of we we skip over hundreds of years of African Christianity that precedes it, and even facts like how a lot of the Ethiopian theologians actually influenced Martin Luther, 
And so there's this hidden past that people don't know about. And people are making an eternal decision to reject Christ because they see Christianity as a monolithic faith, only favoring white people. Again, that's a lie. That's not the truth. We know Christianity welcomes all people. But we have to we have to be willing to admit that when we look functionally at the imagery of Jesus, you got white Jesus, white 12 disciples, uh, white Paul, white Mary, um, just just every just all the imagery typically is there. And that's communicating something to people. So that's the hidden past. There's a hurtful present. And I deal with how uh, certain theologians are given a pass for their views on slavery. And I talk about there's a chapter. It's called the. Uh, product of his culture, the whitewashing of slavery, and h- how we're now saying that someone was a product of their culture, so they're getting a pass based on culture. Mm. No, the gospel transcends culture. We wouldn't say that about. There's a lot of stuff that's acceptable now, Tony, that we know was sinful, yeah. and we wouldn't say, "Oh, well, they were just a product of their culture." So he was polyamorous, <laughs> right, right? Right. We, we wouldn't <laughs> say that. And so we, we, we theologians are suspending their theology for their heroes. I also deal with self-hatred, how some black and brown people internalize whitewashing and begin to look down on people who look like them. Mm-hmm. So you got that hidden past, hurtful present. But then there's this hopeful future, right? Like I'm unpacking centuries of whitewashing, but saying we're not without hope. And our hope mm-hmm. isn't to blackwash the Bible. Our hope isn't black folk, white folk, Indian, Hispanic, whatever, Native American. Our hope isn't one group, one racial group, because we don't need to make a feature of our identity, the foundation of our identity. Our hope is still in Yeshua and his finished work on the cross. But reconciliation is impossible without confrontation. Amen. Christ confronted our sin on the cross. We have to acknowledge it by gracing through faith and believing what he did, and we're reconciled to him. Well, we can't ignore centuries of whitewashing when we talk about we want to be reconciled. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, that's kind of where I'm going with the book. Uh, it's available or wherever books are sold and for pre-order, and uh, I'm excited about it coming out June 29th, uh, 2021. Amen. Now, educate me. Give me some advice on something. Um, one of the things that I've always been irritated, it's always irritated me, is when I visit a church or even when some, there's been friends of mine who came from the same Baptist church where I came from, where we were taught the same things about the African presence in the Bible. But a lot of times, folk, even friends of mine, they'll share images of uh, European uh, European Jesus. And then on, on some hand, on, on sometimes when I make a correction or I say something, I feel like I'm majoring in minor things. I feel like I'm, uh, you know, that Romans 14 chapter where, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. doubtful disputations. And then sometimes I feel like if I don't ever correct it, then we're going to continue. It's going to be 20, 2100 and we're still going to be embracing these characters that did not fit the historical background. So, so you know, I'm interested for someone who studied in this area. What, How do you deal with that issue when you visit a church and, you see white Jesus on the fan and, you know, you know, like, how do you, how do you deal with it? Yeah. So I think that that's why I wrote the book, because the reality is you're not going to have most likely a meaningful conversation in those snapshot ways. But if, if you're willing to take a, a book like mine and I have discussion questions at the end of each chapter for that very purpose, 
So where hopefully we can have dissent groups, people who disagree on how to approach this, but who are willing to disagree without being disrespectful mm-hmm. and willing to disagree without disengaging. Mm-hmm. And so I would say it's not going to happen over just the, you know, they got the white picture. I call him Pantene Pro V Jesus. He got that immaculate <laughs> beard, the hair, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yeah, you got that Pantene Pro V Jesus on the wall. Right. And I'm saying, all right, let's let's talk about this. And let me ask you this. Do you care about lostness? Now, the answer, again, is not blackwashing. The answer is the gospel. So let me be clear. The answer is the gospel. But we know there are things that eclipse the gospel in the minds of people um, who who have yet to believe. And it could be a number. And that's why you see Paul engaging at the Areopagus. Like, hey, I see you. I see you guys are spiritual. I see you got many. But there's one God. So he engages and he addresses the barriers to the one true message. And I'm saying, I'm trying to help people realize that when you present almost pretty much everyone in scripture as white, that's a barrier, not for all people, because some people say, well, skin shouldn't matter. I agree. Ultimately, his skin has nothing to do with his salvation, but it is a part of his ontological makeup. And we got to ask ourselves, why are we making African and Middle Eastern people white? Why are we trying to build them in our image as opposed to just the general markets we usually use. Like, I don't see a, a brown John Calvin. I ain't seen no black John Calvin images. You, I haven't. Um, and so it's like, they say it doesn't matter, but they've already used race in their favor. And it's like, let's just be intentional about showing that Christ has used all people in his plan of redemption. Amen. And that that that's that we just need to be intentional about communicating that. Amen. Amen. Now, how long, how many centuries do you think we're going to go before this, uh, this theology has been corrected where, uh, the, the gospel is not, does not have such a, um, a, a stronghold in European culture and tradition. Do you, do you think, uh, you think we got a hundred years or 150 years or, or, or what do you think is going to take for things to be correct? I'm, I think your book is a great beginning, but, uh, how, how, uh, what are some what are some practical steps that we can take in order to implement the truths of this book? Yeah, it'll it'll never be fully addressed until he returns. Like, think about it. We still are dealing. Arius fought for an incorrect view in three twenty five. You still have the remnants of that with Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. That's right. You still have the you know uh, remnants of that in Mormonism, right? Yeah. And it's twenty twenty one. So it's never going to be fixed until Jesus come back. That that's our hope is Maranatha, right? Amen. But I think I would say I think within the next 50 to 75 you're still going to again you're still going to have the issue. But I think now that you just have more voices and it's not just black and brown people saying it. We have our white brothers and sisters saying, "Yeah, we 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 are complicit." And I think what, what more black and brown people got to say, and, and there's a section in the book I talk about, a race spectrum. Like there is something known as racial ignorance. Everything ain't racism. We got to stop calling everything race. Like some people just genuinely don't know. And they ain't think nothing of it. They didn't. They just painted everybody to look like them. And we got to say, but in some cases it was intentional. I talk about how whitewashing is destructive and dishonest. And so, but we got to stop calling everything racism because when you do, you dilute it when it actually is. So let's, let's begin to have these type of conversations where we're both willing to listen 
So, you know, the people in the UA, urban apologetics, we can't just be saying, y'all need to listen. And the people that are maybe Christian nationalists or whatever, they just can't be saying. Isaiah says, come let us reason together. And so hopefully we can have that posture um, of reasoning together and making the main thing the main thing and not not flipping scripture for our political party or our denominational party, but letting it say what it says and the implications of it speak for itself. Amen. That's powerful. That is powerful. You all, you definitely could do, I'm already encouraging, you need to do whitewashing Christianity part two. Amen. Because, uh, <laughs> because I got uh, one out first. I, I, I need people <laughs> to support one, so I, I need people to support this one. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I think that the issue is so broad that that you probably could do another volume, and uh, you probably could do another volume just because of it's kind of so ingrained that a lot of times we don't even the the uh, we don't. I don't even think we're aware of it. It's it's almost like a, a fish doesn't really notice the the water. Right. Where it's uh it's pretty it's pretty uh ingrained within our, our church culture. I don't think I don't think we even fully recognize it. Um well Pastor Gabe, we can't thank you enough for coming on. You didn't have to do this, you didn't need to do this. We truly appreciate you. You have the last word, and just so you know, our audience is typically thirty to fifty-five year olds. I call them the get better club. Do yeah. you have any uh closing thoughts for our audience? Yeah, Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if Christ died by, for if salvation is achieved by works, then Christ died for no purpose. And so I, I just want to encourage people to rest in his finished work. It's him. It's not us. He's enough. He's enough. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, brother. If you were as blessed as we were by Pastor Jerome Gay Jr., we strongly encourage you to check out his book, Whitewashing Christianity, and also check out his webpage, JeromeGayJr.com. And if you're ever in the Raleigh-Durham area, please check out his church at VisionRDU.com. Thank you, and God bless.